0: Hello everybody and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast episode number 186. Today's big Bible question, what does vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, actually mean? So hello, happy Wednesday friends. Tomorrow we are going to be at the halfway mark, which is awesome, but not yet there today. Shout out to my eight-year-old daughter, Phoebe, who is apparently a keen listener to the podcast. And let me know tonight that the link to the Bible Meditation podcast that I mentioned a couple of days ago, said it was in the show notes, was not on the show notes that she has on the iPad. And she wanted me to let you guys know that. So just if you want to get a link in the show notes that I mention, always go to the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Because even though the show notes usually show up in most podcasting apps, the links won't show up. And I've got all of that information on our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. I also want to give a shout out to my daughter, Abby, our wonderful, ill and talented 17 year old who sometimes listens to the podcast, but she wants to keep that quiet because it's not cool for a 17 year old to listen to her dad's podcast. Well, tonight at 7 p.m., I invite you to join us at VBC Salinas. That's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, Valley Baptist Church of Salinas, for our live stream on racism in the Bible. Two major topics we're going to be talking about live tonight on Facebook. Number one, the abominable fallacy of white supremacy, considering that Jesus was not white. Number two, the surprising biblical cure, and I got my air quotes going there, cure for racism. Uh Not air quotes because it's not real, it is real. But uh, I think the word cure might be a little strong, but it's a good title, so I'm going to go with it. So come join us tonight, 7 p.m. Pacific, on the live stream on Facebook, VBC Salinas. Today we open with a great question from listener and friend Jesse Top Secret Clearance L, based on episode number 183, Why Did Jesus Cast Demons Into a Herd of Pigs? And this is what Jesse says. Intriguing speculating question. Since the demons requested to have Jesus permit them to go into the pigs, it would seem unlikely the demons would have wanted the pigs to kill themselves. Is the death of the pigs a thwarting of the demons' ultimate desires or another meeting? Well, and by the way, if none of that makes sense to you, just go back a couple of episodes and pick up that episode from Matthew 8 on Jesus casting the demons out of a uh, out of a demoniac into a herd of pigs, one of the strangest stories in the Bible. So great question, Jesse. I have an awful lot of questions about that entire episode in Matthew 8, and your question is one of the top ones I have. What point did the pigs serve? Why did Jesus grant their request knowing that it would probably kill all of the pigs? I've read some pretty... Uh, out there answers to those kind of questions before, and some that make a little bit more sense. Um, some of the more out there questions, uh, answers to your question basically allegorize the whole passage and don't really, uh, view it as a, uh, a literal happening, but as something with lots of symbolic meaning. I don't really ascribe to that theory. Um, uh, but there's also the theory that Jesus allowed this to happen knowing that the pigs would die. Because, you know, Jewish people up until uh, the new covenant was inaugurated at the cross were not allowed to eat pigs anyway, and maybe these were Jewish people who were sinning. Look, I suppose that's possible, but honestly, I believe if it was, the text would have at least hinted that something like that was in view by Jesus. My best guess, and that's totally all it is, total guess, is that Jesus sent the demons into the pigs rather than releasing them, I don't know, entirely to go on to their next victim or whatever. So perhaps in a way, he sent them into a sort of, I don't know, jail holding area or whatever in the pigs, but they quickly... Uh, escaped from the pigs, uh, but Jesus is not culpable for their escape into the pigs, out of the pigs. That is because they escaped on their own. Look, look, this is the strangest story in the Bible, or at least one of the top five strangest stories. So I don't really have any idea, but I will tell you my answer or guess is at least partly inspired by Matthew twelve forty three four forty five, where Jesus says this another mysterious passage. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. So look, there's a lot of metaphor in that passage, and I'm not fully sure I understand it either. In fact, I don't fully understand it. But uh, maybe if Jesus just cast the demons out into the air, so to speak, well, then they would just go on and find the next person to demonize or oppress or whatever. And maybe sending them into the pigs um, would make their escape on them rather than on Jesus. I Look, I don't know. It boggles the mind. Uh, but I guarantee you uh, that's going to be one of my big questions if there's a question and answer hub in heaven for all of the things you're curious about on earth because I've got about 25,412 of those kind of questions. Uh, if anybody has any thoughts on that question, uh, I think I need to do a little bit more research on it, but it's intriguing, and I'm going to definitely be reading up a little bit on it. So, is Jesus here speaking in the Matthew 12 passage of people as places with water that a demon could rest in? If he'd simply sent the demons out of that man, would they have been free to immediately enter another man? I I don't know. As you can see, I have, really have no idea how these things work relative to the spirit-slash-demon realm. No idea, but I'm as curious as you are. So today's Bible readings include Joshua 3, Psalm 126, 127, and 128, Isaiah 63, and Matthew 11. Our focus passage is Isaiah 63, and buckle in because it's going to be a bumpy ride. We're going to talk about bloody judgment today. No, I'm not using the mild English epithet, but I am referring to the second coming of the servant of the Lord, aka Jesus, and how... Well, bloody it is going to be. Now, when I say second coming, I realize that bloody is the last adjective that you'd expect me to use. But as we will see in the word, it is surprisingly on point. So let's read Isaiah 63. Well, actually, let's not do it. Let's read Revelation 19 first, at least a portion of it, because honestly, it's going to help us understand Isaiah 63 even better. So Revelation 19, 11 through 16 says this. I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing white, pure linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this rider on the white horse is very obviously Jesus. And this passage is important to read before we read Isaiah 63, because we see here that Jesus is coming back on a war horse with a sword coming out of his mouth. And the sword is for striking the nations. He's also going to trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, and that's pretty darn intense. Jesus is not coming back the second time, meek and lowly, to be born in a manger. He is coming back as a mighty warrior with his robe dipped in blood. Now, why is it dipped in blood? When I first read this years ago, I just kind of connected that to the crucifixion, that maybe it was symbolizing the fact that he had died for us and his blood was still on his robe. Well, as it turns out, that's uh wrong. That's not why his robe is dipped in blood. Let's read Isaiah 63, and we will find out why his robe is dipped in blood. And Isaiah 63, verse 1. By the way, this is a dialogue. Uh it's it's the writer uh asking the writer, the writer of Isaiah 63 asking the rider R-I-D-E-R on the white horse who he is and why he's coming. So here it is. Who is this coming from Edom in crimson stained garments from Basra, this one who is splendid in his apparel, striding in his formidable might? The answer, it is I proclaiming vindication, powerful to save. The question, why are your clothes red and your garments like one who treads a winepress? The answer, I trampled the winepress alone and no one from the nations was with me. I trampled them in my anger and ground them underfoot in my fury. Their blood, their blood spattered my garments and all my clothes were stained. For I planned the day of vengeance and the year of my redemption came. I looked, but there was no one to help and I was amazed that no one assisted. So my arm accomplished victory for me and my wrath assisted me. I crushed nations in my anger. I made them drunk with my wrath and poured out their blood on the ground. Wow. Well, let's keep reading. I will make known the Lord's faithful love and the Lord's praiseworthy acts because of all the Lord has done for us, even the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, which he did for them based on his compassion and the abundance of his faithful love. He said, these are indeed my people, children who will not be disloyal, and he became their savior. In all their suffering he suffered, and the angel of his presence saved them. He redeemed them because of his love and compassion. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of the past. But they rebelled, and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he became their enemy and fought against them. Then he remembered the days of the past, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit among the flock? He made His glorious strength available at the right hand of Moses, divided the water before them to make an eternal name for Himself, and led them through the depths like a horse in the wilderness, so that they did not stumble. Like cattle that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. You led your people this way to make a glorious name for yourself. Look down from heaven and see, from your lofty home, holy and beautiful, where is your zeal and your might? Your yearning and your compassion are withheld from me. Yet you are our father. Even though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, Lord, are our father. Your name is our redeemer. From ancient times, why, Lord, do you make us stray from your ways? You harden our hearts so we do not fear you. Return because of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people had a possession for a little while. But our enemies have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those you never ruled, like those who do not bear your name. So going back to the first part of Isaiah 63, Jesus is coming back and will trample down his enemies who, according to Revelation, will actually be arrayed in some sort of battle formation to meet and fight him upon his second coming. It will be bloody it will be insanely violent. In fact, so violent that Revelation 14, verse 19 and 20 says this, The angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth, and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. Then the press was trampled outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. And look, There's a lot of symbolic language in Revelation, and I don't pretend to understand it, but you do see this very clear picture of Jesus, the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, coming back, his enemies fighting against him, Jesus overcoming them with barely a struggle, casting down the Antichrist and Satan the enemy, and destroying all the kings of the earth that are against Jesus and ruling and reigning. Now, for some of you, that picture will completely undo your understanding of Jesus. Surely he's compassionate, merciful, and gentle, right? And the answer, of course, is yes. He is compassionate, merciful, and gentle. uh, The most compassionate, merciful, and gentle human that's ever lived. Fully human, fully God. He's all of those things. But he's also a majestic and mighty warrior because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is fully just and fully holy. In fact, in his first sermon ever, when Jesus first gets up and addresses people out of the word of God, remember, he unrolls the scroll and goes to Isaiah 61, what we read just two days ago. And listen to what he says, because both elements of Jesus, the king of kings and Jesus, the meek and lowly are in this passage. Isaiah 61, one through two, Jesus says this passage is about himself. The spirit of the Lord God has on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. So we see the mercy and holiness of Jesus here. Good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, healing for the brokenhearted, but we also see the day of God's vengeance. Jesus is proclaiming both of those. So what in the world is the day of God's vision? Vengeance. Well, it's a great question. And I believe that Isaiah 63 and Revelation 19 are both describing it. The day of God's vengeance is the return of Jesus when he sets everything right. Now think about this in the context of Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 12, 19, where Paul says this, friends, Do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So God is the one who will have vengeance. We are not called to getting revenge and vengeance, etc. We're not called to take it out on our enemies. Jesus, looking forward to his return, describes that day as a, quote, day of vengeance. In Luke 21, verses 21 and 22, he says, those in Judea must flee to the mountains, those inside the city must leave it, and those who are in the country must not in, enter it, because these are days of vengeance to fulfill all the things that are written. Jeremiah the prophet also looks forward to Jeremiah 46.10 and sees that day. He says that day belongs to the Lord, the God of armies, a day of vengeance to avenge himself against his adversaries. The sword will devour and be satisfied. It will drink its fill of their blood because it will be a sacrifice to the Lord, the God of armies in the northern land by the Euphrates rivers. The prophet Joel famously calls this day of vengeance, this second coming, this end of history, this end of all days, he calls it the great and terrible day of the Lord. So Job 2, 30 and 31 says, I will display wonders in the heaven and on the earth, blood, fire, fire, columns of smoke the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the lord comes then everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved for there will be an escape for those on mount zion and in jerusalem as the lord promised among the survivors the lord calls so the book of revelation then sort of unpacks the fullness or at least more of the fullness of what is coming during these days that the prophets looked forward to and saw the return of the Messiah. It will be a beautiful and great day because all the people of God will be delivered, saved, healed, and prepared for eternal life in the presence of Jesus with no pain, suffering, or trouble. It will be terrible because it will also be a day of judgment when those who are enemies of God and the wicked will be judged. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, that hardly sounds fair. Sure is a great privilege for those who are friends of God in a terrible day for the enemies of God, and you've got it right. You've got it absolutely right. But when we speak about privilege, we need to understand something about the message of Jesus and how he rolled. The message of Jesus penetrated and pierced the prostitutes And the tax collectors and the least of these and the sinners and they followed Jesus. It was the great of society, the high and lofty of society, those with great power and with great influence. They rejected him. So if you want to think about the concept of privilege and I agree with some of the thoughts that uh, the current movement has about privilege, probably don't agree with all of it. But if you want to think about privilege in terms of the return of Christ, understand the gospel of Jesus is for the poor and the lowly and the sinner, and those are the people who bite down on it. It's the prideful and the haughty that reject it. So, we got a reverse privilege kind of thing going on here. And the people that reject the call of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus are the enemies of God, and He died for them and they rejected Him. So, Revelation 19 1 and 2 sort of uh, reflects the reality of those last days pretty well. When it says, hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute. We talked about her, the the, uh, prostitute of Babylon for a few episodes ago. He has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the whole earth with her sexual immorality and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. So that's what's coming. He's going to have vengeance for all of the evil that has been done from people who do not turn and seek forgiveness and transformation and salvation from Jesus. So let's close with the fullness of the Christian ethic that you and I are called to, the turn the other cheek ethic, the pray for those who persecute you ethic the love your enemy ethic, the upside down way of the world ethic that Jesus calls us to, let's focus on that going back to Romans twelve nineteen and 20, remembering that we are not the judge. We are not the avenger of wrongdoing. We are not the agents of vengeance and justice because those things belong to God. We're ministers of his mercy, love, grace, truth and kindness. And Paul says, Romans twelve nineteen and 20, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. So, friends, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Feed your enemies. Give them something to drink. Don't seek revenge justice will be served and we are not the agents of justice. Joshua chapter 3 verse 1. Joshua started early the next morning and left the acacia grove with all the Israelites. They went so far as the Jordan and stayed there before crossing. After three days the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God carried by the Levitical priests." You are to break camp and follow it, but keep a distance of about a thousand yards between yourselves and the ark. Don't go near it so that you can see the way to go, for you haven't traveled this way before. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves because the Lord will do wonders among you tomorrow. Then he said to the priests, carry the ark of the covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the ark of the covenant and went ahead of them. The Lord spoke to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they will know that I will be with you just as I was with Moses. Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the water, stand in the Jordan. Then Joshua told the Israelites, Come closer and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He said, You will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly dispossess you before you, the Canaanites, Hethites, Hivites, Perizzites, Gergesites, Amorites, Amorites, and Jebusites, when the ark of the covenant of the Lord of the whole earth goes ahead of you into the Jordan. Now choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man for each tribe, When the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of the whole earth, come to rest in the Jordan's water, its water will be cut off. The water flowing downstream will stand up in a mass. When the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant ahead of the people. Now the Jordan overflowed its blank banks throughout the harvest season, but as soon as the priests carrying the Ark reached the Jordan River, their feet touched the water at its edge, and the water flowing downstream stood still, rising up in a mass that extended as far as Adam, a city next to Zarathan. The water flowing downstream into the Sea of the Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off, and the people crossed opposite Jericho. The priests carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed on dry ground until the entire nation... Had finished crossing into the Jordan. Amen. Psalm chapter 126, verse 1. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like watercress courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builder labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. They will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. Psalm 128. How happy is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in his ways. You will surely eat what your hands have worked for. You will be happy and it will go well for you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like young olive trees around your table." In this very way, the man who fears the Lord will be blessed. May the Lord bless you from Zion, so that you will see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life, and will see your children's children. Peace be with Israel. Hallelujah. That is a prayer I pray almost every day of my life. Lord, let me live to see all my children's children. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his twelve disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked them, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see, a reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go to see, a man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear clothes, soft clothes, are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, look. "'a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. "'Yet wisdom is vindicated by our deeds.' "'Then he proceeded to denounce the towns where most of his miracles were done, "'because they did not repent. "'Woe to you, Chorazid! Woe to you, Bethsaida! "'For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. "'they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago.' But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until today. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, "'I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest.'" Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, that your yoke is indeed easy and your burden is light. Give us rest, Lord, as we are surrounded by the fires of this coronavirus burning and false information and true information to the point where we can't know the difference between the two. We need you. Our eyes turn to you. Give us rest. Your people give us rest and protection in this darkest of hours. Raise up your people as lights in a dark world, Lord. Shine your light through us as jars of clay, inadequate to hold the light of the universe, but you have called us lights. Blessed be your name. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.